It just means I agree. It means I agree, that's good, that's a good thing. All right, so we have uh, been in um, a series to close out this year. We're just calling Jesus Is, really simple. And we're using Luke's eyewitness account, Dr. Luke, who was an eyewitness account of Jesus, but also who gathered other eyewitness accounts of Jesus to write down a careful account of who Jesus is and what he did and the significance of Jesus. And so I think that's probably a good place for us to go, don't you? Yeah, good place for us to go. And from what we understand, Jesus, 100% God, 100% man, is a good place for us to go to try to learn more about God. I mean, God's a kind of a idea so big your human brain can't comprehend it, right? And how would we understand God? Well, thankfully, God revealed himself to us. Hundreds of years, the romance of God with us written in the story that is in the scriptures, that is your Old Testament. We start in the Garden of Eden and God from the creation, the first man, the first woman, wanting to come down and to walk with us, to talk with us daily, to have personal relationship with us. We believe in that, not because we're a church that meets in a movie theater. We believe in that even if we were meeting in a cathedral, because it is who God is. It is the great story, the great romance of God reaching out to us. And yet in that beginning point, Adam and Eve chose sin and the relationship was changed. And we talked about that at length yesterday. You can go back and listen to if you want on our website or through iTunes. But God chose to reveal himself to us through Jesus. Jesus whose existence has never been disproven. No academic, no historian has been able to disprove the existence of Jesus. Nor has been able to disprove his crucifixion, his death being executed by the Romans, his resurrection. No one has been able to disprove the fact that he is alive today. <laughs> That's someone who I think is worth our time to get to know. Hello, are you breathing? You get a what? what? Right? That's someone who is worth our time to get to know. So let's, let's discover a little bit more about who Jesus is. Let's go Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, let's read uh, verses 10 through 17. When the apostles returned, they told Jesus everything they had done. Then he slipped quietly away with them toward the town of Bethsaida. He's one in some alone time here. But the crowds found out where he was going and they followed him. He welcomed them and he taught them about the kingdom of God and he healed those who were sick. Now, it's really easy for us to miss this aspect of who Jesus is. Jesus is teaching and healing to serve their needs. It's, we think now of that as being something that people do to get money. Can we be real? That's not what Jesus did it for. They came to him, they crowded to him when he wanted alone time, when it was inconvenient. And what did he do? He welcomed them and taught them about the kingdom of God and he healed those who were sick. Late in the afternoon, the 12 disciples came to him and said, send the crowds away to the nearby villages and farms so they can find food and lodging for the night. There is nothing 
to eat here in this remote place. But Jesus said, you feed them. (laughs) But we only have five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Are you expecting us to go and buy enough food for this whole crowd? For there are about 5,000 men there. Jesus replied, tell them to sit down in groups of about 50 each. So the people all sat down. Jesus took the five loaves and two fish and looked up toward heaven and blessed them. Then breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread and fish to the disciples so they could distribute it to the people. They all ate as much as they wanted. And afterward, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. Anyone still have Thanksgiving leftovers? 12 baskets of leftovers. Let's drop down here. Verse 46. Then his disciples began arguing about which of them was the greatest. We saw this repeated last week. But Jesus knew their thoughts. So he brought a little child to his side. Then he said to them, Anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me also welcomes my father who sent me. Whoever is least among you is the greatest. Let's turn to chapter 14. Just take a right-hand turn, flip a couple pages there. Chapter 14, and we're going to start in verse 1. Chapter 14, verse 1. Are you there? Okay. One Sabbath day, Jesus went to eat dinner in the home of a leader of the Pharisees, and the people were watching him closely. There was a man there whose arms and legs were swollen. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in religious law, is it permitted in the law to heal people on the Sabbath day or not? When they refused to answer, Jesus touched the sick man and healed him and sent him away. Then he turned to them and said, which of you doesn't work on the Sabbath? If your son or cow falls into a pit, don't you rush to get him out? Again, they could not answer. When Jesus noticed that all who had come to the dinner were trying to sit in the seats of honor near the head of the table, he gave them this advice. This may be a reminder of what Thanksgiving was like for you. A little fussing. When you are invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor. What if someone who is more distinguished than you has also been invited? The host will come and say, give this person your seat. Then you will be embarrassed and you will have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table. Then, when your host sees you, he will come and say, Friend, we have a better place for you. Then you will be honored in front of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then he turned to his host and said, When you put on a luncheon or a banquet, don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors, for they will invite you back. And that will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. Let's go to chapter 22. Jesus is one interesting person. Chapter 22. We're going to come back and repeat a passage that we read last Sunday. So we're at the the Last Supper. Chapter 22, we'll pick up in verse 20. 
After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. But here at this table, sitting among us as a friend, is the man who will betray me. For it has been determined that the Son of Man must die. Well, what sorrow awaits the one who betrays him? The disciples began to ask each other, which of them would ever do such a thing? Then they began to argue among themselves about who would be greatest among them. Jesus told them, in this world, kings and great men lord it over their people, yet they are called, quote, the friends of people. But among you, it will be different. Those who are greatest among you should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like a servant. Who is more important, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? The one who sits at the table, of course, but not here, for I am among you as one who serves. I think it's safe to say that in everything Jesus did, in everything about who Jesus is, God was communicating with us about himself. It's Jesus who said, I am among you as one who serves. It's how Jesus chose to reveal himself. I think we need to remember, he could have revealed himself to us in any way. I mean, really, Iron Man has nothing on what Jesus could have done. Why arrive as a baby? No one's afraid of a baby. If you are, we'll pray for you. They wanted Jesus to be the ruler in control. The most electable, the most likable, but also the most in control leader. That's what they wanted of him. That's who they wanted him to be. Trust me, neither political party in our country has been happy with the candidates they've been able to come up with. They're always looking for someone better. God sent his best and the way in which he sent his best was jesus who came as a servant does that just strip gears for you just a little bit jesus uses this word serve i am here to serve i'm here as one who serves and if we synthesize a boil down into as concise a statement as possible The language in which Jesus used with that word, this is what we come up with. I'm here as one who serves. To give help by doing something, often of a humble nature. That's how Jesus revealed himself. That's what he said he was going to be. Now, a lot of us come to God broken, which is exactly how we should. In fact, I think we all come to God broken. And yet when we start to get a bit fixed up, it is so easy to quickly run off to lead and take control. And and you notice that the the books that sell the most and the the videos that get the most clicks and the the, the people, the teachers, the self-help, the doctors, the ones that are the ones who train you to be a leader. But who is our Jesus. Yes, he is indeed the king of all kings. 
He is indeed the one to whom one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. But when he came to reveal himself to us, he came as one who serves. It's upside down world, bizarro world. It's strange. Are you with me? Right? It's a little strange. So, I want to dig into this just, just briefly. Jesus said, Matthew 20, 26, and 28, Anyone wanting to be a leader among you must be your servant. And if you want to be right at the top, you must serve like a slave. Your attitude must be like my own, for I did not come to be served, but to serve. And from Luke twenty two twenty six, but every But among you, the one who serves is the best. That's the one who will be your leader. Now, I'd like to give you this morning, just briefly, seven reasons to serve others. Are you okay? Seven reasons to serve others. So let's start with one. We were created to. <laughs> you will be happier this way because that's how you're hardwired. What you will find when you put yourself in a place where you are going to serve others is that it just feels good. It's just a little bit better. Paul wrote to the believers in the city of Ephesus, it is God himself who has made us what we are and given us new lives from Christ Jesus. Long ago, he planned that we should spend these lives in helping others. It's God's plan. We were created to. Number two, it proves that we belong to Jesus. You know, it doesn't come from straight from your sinful nature. You don't see two and three-year-olds going, let me serve you. It's more like mine, mine, mine. Maybe it's only our children. Paul wrote to the believers in Rome. You are part of the body of Christ. And now you belong to him in order that we might be useful in the service of God. I am here this morning to serve God. Serving you is a byproduct of that. Hello? It's what we were created to do. It's what we are wired for. It is our purpose. It proves that we belong to Jesus because if I only belong to myself, if I only serve myself, I will only serve myself. And to the degree that I serve others, it will only be to manipulate them to get out of them what I want from them. Therein lies the root of any problem in a marriage. We got your attention now. That's the root of the problem in relationships. And I come to you to serve you, but on conditions of what I can get out of you. That's why they wrote the marriage vows for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health. Number three, we serve God by serving others. It's, it's actually how we do this. Paul wrote to the believers in Colossae, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for men. It is the Lord you are serving. One thing that we need to realize, one reason that we should have to serve others is that it is not to serve them. It is actually how you serve God. That's how we do it. That's why we do it. Any person in my life 
whether it be my wife, my children, a good boss, a bad boss, you, anyone that I serve, I am actually not serving that person only. When I come into that relationship, and I know I've referred to this in the past and told stories about this in the past, but where it really clicked for me, where it became easier for me to be excellent at a bad job with a bad boss was when I realized that I was there to represent, to serve God. It's how we do this. When you do it that way, your motives become right. And guess what? It becomes easier. Easier to overlook their flaws. Easier to have that kind of love that keeps no record of wrong. Right? It becomes easier because you're not there to serve them for their sake. Because it is God's grace that is working through you. And God's grace and God's love comes to us when we don't deserve it. That's how he works. Come on, somebody, give me an amen, a shout. Jesus, something, come on, right? That is how this works. It's how this works. God's grace to you is when you don't deserve it, when there is nothing, what are you going to give God? Hello? And yet, in the mystery of his wisdom, he created the world, put skin and bones on you, knew you in your mother's womb, wired you, designed you for this purpose so that you could find fulfillment in it, so that you could do something that he chooses not to do. He chose not to come down now in flesh and blood and serve Ronald and serve Rebecca and serve Daniel. He gives us the opportunity to do that. There's a genius to it. What? what? Come on. Seven reasons to serve. Number four, we owe God everything. If you don't know this, you need to become aware of it. Paul wrote to the believers in Rome, because of God's great mercy to us, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God, dedicated to His service and pleasing to Him. Number five, it's the best use of our lives. You know why we come to a place of being frustrated, of getting disillusioned with that new fantastic job, of feeling empty once we've achieved that goal or eventually no longer happy with that Christmas present. is a human desire will never end. The only ultimate fulfillment is in the Creator. And when we spend our lives, and you do, whether you are lazy or you work hard, whether you live on purpose or you let life come to you as an accident, no matter how you live, you are spending your life. Believer or not, one day we will stand before God and give account for what we did with it. The believers, Jesus is very clear in Scripture that someday you will stand before Him and give account for what you did after your salvation. It's the best use serving other people. Paul wrote to the believers in Corinth. This is a good news paraphrase. Keep busy in your work for the Lord since you know that nothing you do in the Lord's service is ever without value. Do you realize that when you serve others or serve God, nothing is wasted? Not a single thing. Number six, it makes life meaningful. 
Your life has meaning when you serve other people. There's a purpose to it. You find definition. You find worth. It's a beautiful thing. Jesus said, Only those who throw away their lives for my sake and the sake of the good news will ever know what it means to really live. You may have heard it said before that you have not really lived until you found a reason worth dying for. I can tell you that it's true. It's sad, but I have wasted too many days of my own life focused on things that were not worth dying for. That was where my addictions came from. That was where my brokenness came from. That was where, when, how, and why I would manipulate people was because I was once focused on things that were all about me. But when I became broken and when I surrendered to Jesus and when I found love, forgiveness, grace, when I began to experience, really experience what this relationship with Jesus is really like, I was completely changed and found purpose and found meaning and found new life and an opportunity to serve others in a way that makes a difference. And don't you know that when you choose not to, there is a miss. There's a miss. You can choose to not show up. And I played small time college soccer. One time we were in a tournament because we had a bunch of international students and one of them had forgotten his passport and couldn't come with us into Canada for the soccer tournament. We had no substitutes. So standing out on the field playing, go up for a ball early in the first match and this huge guy just swings around and catches me right in the throat with his elbow. And I'm standing there just like unable to breathe and really not sure if I'm like permanently damaged. Like just trying to gather myself and figure out what's going on. And normally what you do in that situation in soccer where there's like no timeouts is you look to the sideline and you have the coach send on a sub. And I look to the sideline and I see there's no one there. Now I could have still chosen to take myself out of the game. I could have still chosen to walk off the field, but instead I stood there and I collected myself, realized that I wasn't crushed. It took a while, but I was able to breathe and I recovered and I continued to play. One of the saddest things that I see as a pastor and have seen in other responsibilities in the past and in leading this church as pastor is not the death. It's not the unemployment. It's the way that people so easily take themselves out of the game. You can take yourself out of the game. Say what you will that's wrong about this church or others. Usually that's because someone has taken themselves out of the game. That church would be different if somebody else was showing up and making a difference. A church would be different if people that were still there would get over themselves and show up for real, not just in their body. Just a little honesty this morning. We take ourselves out of the game too easily. Only those who throw away... This is Jesus' words, not mine. 
Only those who throw away their lives for my sake and the sake of the good news will ever know what it means to truly live. Number seven, serving will be rewarded for eternity. For, forever, without end. Jesus said, my father will honor the ones who serve me. He said, well done, good and faithful servants. You will be faithful. You've been faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. We've got to have a biblical understanding of what God's value system is in his kingdom. That means now on the earth, Every person that lives and breathes and for all of eternity, when this earth comes to an end and when he remakes it and we are in the heaven and the earth and the city of our God, the future that lies before us, like it or not, believe it or not, when we come into that place, the value system that is the kingdom of God is one of service. Imagine how your life would be different if everyone in your life had this value system, whether they are the boss or whether they are the janitor, whether they are on the stage at the concert or they're digging out the latrines, whatever their role is, if their value system, if their motives, if their heart was to serve others, think about how your life would be different. It would be better. Those that serve will be rewarded for eternity. Jesus says, I came to be one among you who serve. What does that mean? To give help by doing something, often of a humble nature. And remember, him telling the story, who do we serve? Those who cannot repay you. He says in another passage, actually, even evil people will do that. Do something good so that they can get something good in return. That's what Jesus said. Even evil people do that. How different are you if the only people you will serve are those you can get something out of? If we are Jesus followers, if we're going to be changed by Jesus, if we're going to come to know Jesus, if we're going to experience Him, and trust me, we don't want you to be here with some kind of legalistic, holier-than-thou, non-profit-only to-do list that actions make you holy. They do not. It doesn't work that way. You must be a Jesus believer before you can do Jesus believer. You've got to experience him before you can display him. Or then all you'll ever be doing is something out of a wrong heart and a wrong motive. And guess what comes of that? Paul writes, it's worse than female sanitary napkins. That's the word he uses. Good deeds that are done with the wrong motives. He actually uses a curse word that some of you would leave the church if I used. He uses a curse word with that descriptor on it. That's what righteous deeds are with the wrong motives. But when I step back and I serve because Jesus served me, I just say, you know what? I don't have it all together. But for some reason, God loves me. For some reason... God cares. For some reason, he gave his best. Not for what he could get out of me, but he gave his best. He forgave me. He made me clean. He set me right. And so, I want to do something. I want to do something. For me, 
16 years old was the turning point. I was a wreck. I was a mess. There isn't time to tell you the story of all the ways that I was a mess. I'd seen death. Friends in prison, other things. I'd come to a place in my life where I really felt if God isn't real, then the rest of this life isn't worth living. That was my out of church, out of the Bible. That was like separated me doing my own thing. I mean, I, you can kind of tell. Like, I'm not a 50% person. I'm like all the way. And so when I was serving myself, I was all the way. And that brought me to a place of seeing death face to face. Seeing things go wrong where I said, you know what? If God's not alive, then life is not worth living. Standing on a cliff, looking down 200 feet straight down. Where at least one person dies every year. And I said, okay, God, in my arrogance as a 16-year-old, I'll give you a chance. And instead of jumping or instead of continuing the next day the way I'd done the day before, I turned around and I started to walk the streets. And for the next year, probably four nights a week, in the middle of the night, I would walk the streets of the city and talk to God and listen to Him. And He began to really change me. And what came out of that was that I didn't know what to do. You know, I was telling my friends and I was doing everything and I didn't know what to do. And so what I did was I went to my youth pastor who was ready to never see me again. He, he didn't want nothing to do with me. And that is a true story. I bring him up here and tell him himself someday. And I said, what can I do? What can I do? And listen, every week when I and others come in here, and unroll the cords and plug everything in and turn on the lights and wire stuff. And everything that I do here and knowing how all this stuff works is because of what I learned when what he said was here. You can set this up. And every week on a Wednesday night, we'd set up 400 chairs, a stage, a drum set, a keyboard, sound system by myself. Just put me in the room and said, figure it out. I didn't do it for a reputation. I didn't do it to get closer to God. I knew I was already as close to God as I could ever be. I did it because I had to do something. When you come to a place where you're forgiven and the gratitude to God and His presence overwhelms you, you come to a place of needing to do something about it. And that's why I serve. And so when I come here and I serve you as a church, and you know, a couple weeks ago, or a month plus ago when they started the demolition in here in the building and the construction, our storage room where the little kids meet just covered with a layer of dust from all the demolition, all the concrete that was being jackhammer and everything, everything, everything that you see up here, everything in the kids room covered with dust. Really easy for me to go in early the next morning and spend two hours and before the last lunch, an hour by myself with a rag, just wiping everything down cleaning everything and praying for you it's easy for me i never plan to talk about it and i'm not trying to talk about it to make you think i'm any better but what i'm trying to do is give you a real illustration from my life it's easy i'm serving god my life has meaning there is purpose service has purpose can you say that service has purpose. Come on, you can do it. You're not that cool. Service has purpose, right? 
It's easy to do when you see a purpose in it. You say, I'm serving God. This is my life. I want to encourage us. I want to encourage us to not be like the rest of this world and to try to dominate people and to get the best seats at the table. I want to encourage us to be different. I want to encourage us to get more like Jesus and to serve those who can't repay you. You know, the heart of this church, our whole purpose, you see on the slide we talk about all the time, is helping helping people connect with Jesus, grow in faith, and share His love. That's our big three. Connect, grow, share. Why, people ask me to describe, why would you move from Portland, Oregon, just you and your wife, knowing only Joe and Anna in Baltimore, to start a church? No money, no reputation, no one really talking about us. Why would you do that? Give up just about on the edge of moving into a six-figure job, just a very gradual next step up from where I was. Why would you leave that life? Both of our families in Portland why would you leave all that? And I try to describe the journey of what it's like uh, that God took us through for a few years, really, it took, um, to get us to the place of coming here. Everything about this church is not to put on a show that you can attend once a week. Everything about this church is because what we see in the scriptures is that God is worthy to be served on a personal way. And then when God goes to extend His kingdom on earth, when God is ready to grow His kingdom, to bring more people into His kingdom, which the kingdom of God, to be honest with you, I care about way more than the church. When God goes to extend His kingdom on earth, He uses the vehicle of the church. It came to a place in studying my Bible where I could no longer see anything I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Acts, and and the letters, and everything that I read that would give us instruction about how to live our lives today. All I saw was people making an intentional decision to move from where they lived into a city. When they did, they always went into the middle of the city, and they served people by displaying with their lives and with their words who Jesus is. People who were far from God. Open the Bible, you'll find it. It was all that I could see. It was all, and it became overwhelming to me. It really, literally became to the point in my life where I could no longer go to work, where I could no longer live my life, where I could no longer live for myself, where the only thing I could do to obey God was to move here, to pick up our family, our two kids, and move here, not knowing anyone, with no funding, with nothing, and within two months of being here, 80% of my income taken away, and shortly thereafter, all of it. With everything, it was not so we could set up this fancy church and be what everyone else expects, or what you think, or what you enjoyed best about your last church. It had nothing to do with that. It was that through hours and hours of being in the scriptures and in prayer, God revealed to us over and over that Baltimore City had people who needed Jesus. I don't understand all the mystery. 
I've met hundreds of pastors already in my search here in Baltimore to get to know all the pastors in the churches because we're not here because we think we have it all together and there aren't enough churches here. But what we have discovered is that a lot of the churches that you see that are buildings are shut. No one meets there. And there are others that are in decline. There are others that the pastor is retired or dying and there's no one to take their place. There's no healthy structure for passing the baton like we will have here. Because I am not here for to build this church for myself. We are not here to build what it can be under me. We are here for what it will be beyond us. We are here for what it will be long into the future. It's how the kingdom of God works. That's how you serve people who cannot repay you. That's why we're here. We want to help as many people as possible in the middle of Baltimore City. Connect with Jesus. Grow in faith. And share His love. That's why we're here. It's a heart of service. And Rebecca's going to come and lead us in prayer and communion. And I'm going to wrap up uh, with a, a quick announcement about how we're going to serve the least of these in Baltimore. So don't leave until you hear that announcement. But I want to put an invitation out to you. This church is here for people that are far from God. Not for people that have a home church. This church is here for people that are far from God. And I want to invite you to make it your home church to get on board and to get involved. We've got a lot of needs. We've got more vision, more dreams, more opportunities to do ministry right now than we can do anything with. And literally, we have so many opportunities in the city right now. So many. To feed the poor, to provide clothing, to display Jesus, to speak about Jesus. We need you. We need your help for Sundays, sure. We obviously need help with the music, with leading prayer and communion. We need help with small groups in your homes. We need help with a lot of things. We don't have it all figured out. I'd love to get to the place where there's a rotation of people teaching and I'm not leading worship every Sunday. This is not about us. We're here to serve the city. And you don't know about it because we don't talk about a lot of the things that we do. There are some churches that are still open in Baltimore because of us that would have shut down if not for the opportunity God gave us to bring healing in those churches. But we need you to be involved. And I want to invite you to step up. Does that sound okay? Yeah? Here, Rebecca, lead us, please. You can all go ahead and stand. And we're going to...